Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 2, Episode 13. Today is Thursday, April the 26th, 2018. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our sponsor for This Week in Voice, as well as the Voice First Roundtable, is St. Louis-based Voice XP. And like I did last week, I want to take a moment not only to thank uh, Voice XP for the work that they're doing in the field, I know that in a couple of weeks they're going to graduate from their accelerator that they're in in St. Louis, which is exciting. But I also want to give a special shout out to Bonnie Snyder, who is, along with Katie McMahon, who's one of our guests today, uh, going to be on the Witty Summit Women of Voice Technology panel that will be taking place later this year out in San Jose, California. That's pretty exciting. What Voice XP is doing is exciting. If you need someone to create an Alexa skill for you, look them up, www.voicexp.com. You'll be glad that you did. We've got a phenomenal panel today. This is kind of a treat, a real all-star group. First up is Theo Lau. Theo, how are you? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for having me. So Theo is founder of Unconventional Ventures. Theo, tell us, uh, tell us what that is. So it is by all means unconventional in a way. The reason why I picked that name is because the demographics that I'm looking at and the cause I'm looking at is somewhat different than typically when you think about innovation and technology. I'm very much interested in leveraging technology to improve the well-being of the older demographics and particularly interested in female founders and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Thank you for joining us today. And also, thank you for allowing me to be part of the Finnovate Twitter chat that just took place. Uh, if you're on Twitter, look for hashtag Finnovate, F-I-N-O-V-A-T-E, chats, and you'll be able to see this great Twitter chat that Theo hosted earlier today. Th- Theo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Next up is Katie McMahon. Katie, say hello. Hi there, everyone. Katie, thank you for joining us. Katie is Vice President and General Manager of SoundHound, Inc. Katie, tell us about SoundHound and all the great stuff y'all are doing. Thank you, Bradley, and particularly to this whole Voice First community. Uh, It's exciting to be here and um, further help the understanding of what our Houndify Voice AI platform has uh, developed and productized and gotten live, right? So just real quickly, we took 10 years in stealth mode to develop several core technologies that in the end, produced a step change in how we can enable a voice interface that is natural, conversational, and truly much closer to how the human mind works versus the current standard of entity detection um, type frameworks. So I'm glad to be here and I look forward to our conversation. If you ever have a chance to hear Katie speak, do not miss it. Uh, She spoke at the Alexa conference last year. She speaks frequently on behalf of SoundHound, Inc., um, and uh, is is just phenomenal. Uh, And what SoundHound is doing is phenomenal, too. So thank you for joining us, Katie. Thank you. Next up, we have the one and only Voice First Oracle, Brian Romley. Brian, say hello. Hello. I'm really excited to be here. Both uh, Katie and Theo are inspiration to me. Brian, what are you working on right now? Share, us, uh, share with us a window into your world and what you've got going on right now. I'm working on a lot of sort of stealthy types of projects. Uh, what I can talk about is 
my general frustration in the way some of the advancements are taking place within the voice first community. Uh, I know nothing against what is in the market right now, but I feel we're heading towards a stagnation point in the next uh, 12 months. And I'm way in front of that stagnation point. So a lot of people are sort of like, Hey, it's all taken off. And I'm like, well, you don't see what's coming up ahead. So Part of being a pioneer is being up in front of it and seeing where the issues are. And I, what was it, a year ago, we talked about the privacy issues that Facebook was running into. And we haven't begun to really see the privacy issues that we're going to be facing in Voice First. And I'm trying to work that out. Working with some very large marquee clients, um, taking a tremendous amount of my time, uh, you know, doing it myself. And I think I'm going to have to start finding people to work with. That's all I could talk about at this point. Hey, that's why we call you the voice first oracles. Yeah. Uh, we don't expect you to share everything, uh, only when the time is right. Thank you for all three of y'all joining us, just an all-star panel. And with that, we will get to the news. Story number one is from CNBC. And this headline is just, I don't like the way this headline is written, but we'll roll with it anyway. Amazon targets kids with a candy-colored Echo and a version of Alexa, which awards politeness. This sounds like... Uh, the headline makes it sound like, you know, Amazon's a stranger offering candy to, to a kid to get in the car or something. I'm, I'm, like I'm hearing an ice cream <laughs> truck coming along with yeah. this. To make it. Yeah, this is uh, they could have written the headline a little bit differently, but the story is a big one. This uh, children oriented echo. And Theo, I want to start with you. What do you think about this concept of what Amazon has rolled out? And share with me how this news uh, and this approach by Amazon sort of strikes you. It's actually fascinating if you think about it. When you guys were talking about ice cream truck and candy, there's this little story when I was growing up in Hong Kong that, um, you know, the strangers, they will lure you with little goldfish because it's pretty, it's colorful, and it's captivating. And I think... By and large, that's what Amazon is doing. And I have two kids. And um, when I saw this news, I actually thought it's kind of cool because we have the Apple HomePod and we have Google Home. But we struggle with it a little bit in terms of in the old days when we are programming, it's uh, one line, two line codes, but it's writing, right? When you're conversational, you're still polite, even though when you're programming and typing is abrupt. But with all of these virtual assistants, you're barking a command into a device. And I do caught myself, you know, thinking, oh my goodness, should we say please? Should we be more polite when we're talking to the little box that's sitting on the countertop? So I think that's nice. And I, and I love the fact that it addresses some of the parental concerns, like you cannot be ordering things. Um, you know, you can block it with different access hours and you customize the content. So in, it, in by itself, it's Amazon trying to port the whole experience that kids get on iPads and they're devices nowadays to the voice ring. Now, with that being said, though, the flip side of it, where the cynical side of me is thinking, wow, they are actually pretty smart because you want to get them young. When they get used to it, when they get used to interacting with the Echo because the parents feel it's safe, well, guess what happens when they get older? right? They basically dominate the market. Um, They're trying to get into all of the different corners of the house. So why not target additional demographics? First, I want to zoom out and acknowledge that 
the youngsters today, and I categorize that between those literally who are um, in gestation through to age five, six, seven, they will become known as the voice first generation, right? I, I've, I've sort of tried to coin this, the, the Gen V group, right? We've had millennials, we've got our, our um, Gen Z, and then we've got this voice native coming up because they will have interfaced to things of computing power with their backs to it. Unlike the iPad generation, which got swipe, uh, swept up sort of in the touch, type, and swipe decade. So on the high level, youngsters interfacing with the IoT is um, a fascinating realm to which I think we have yet to see deep thinking across multi-disciplines. So while I will forever give Amazon the credit for, in essence, having their Steve Jobs moment. When, when Jobs stood on stage and unveiled the iPhone, that became our iconic marker of touch, type, and swipe era. The Echo, launching quite quietly and becoming this overnight success over the, the past two years, really, and gaining the momentum, that cylinder cone will be the iconic device that represented the beginning of voice first, right? So the little people who got introduced to their kitchen counters and speaking or asking to play a song, et cetera, there's the novelty factor, but how do we think very deeply in regards to what does this mean for their development, literally their neurological development? The realm of children's education with voice interfacing is huge. I think there's a lot of killer apps there. And I know Brian has some big thoughts along those lines as well. But what Amazon does right here, I view as very tactical, right? Just as Theo said, um, to use an interesting word by mentioning port. So it's porting an experience of sorts. But my question will be how deeply and thoroughly thought through is this experience? And again, that points to the burgeoning field of VUI and the voice user interface designers to which there's going to be a floodgate of need for really great audio designers, those who think first in the, in the sound floating around us and how do we engage. I would want us to take a deep pause and make sure that this Gen V growing up speaks like you and I do, which means it's context-aware, continuous, conversational, and heaven forbid, they get stunted into learning speech by barking at a device in entity detection or robotic or Tarzan speak in order to make this thing work. I believe very, very deeply in the way nature has built our communication modalities. I mean, you're talking about evolution for millions of years uh, to develop their ability to communicate by speech. And somehow the last, you know, 70, 80 years, we somehow believe that typing and that form of communication, very abrupt and very non-continuous, non-dialogue, non really sometimes very non-contextual type of communication is the future. And that is absolutely wrong because humanity is actually not going to survive if that's how we communicate. We're, we're, we're not going to pair bond. We're not going to reproduce. It's going to end. So that's not going to happen. So over time, what's going to happen is people are going to get frustrated with these modalities of communication. The technology as it exists today is available, 
what uh, what we're seeing going on with Hound and some other companies that are in stealth mode, where you can have what I'm doing in my garage. I mean, I'm just a guy with a piggy bank in my garage with Raspberry Pis, and I have continuity conversations for 35, 40 minutes. You know, where there, it's constantly kind of laying the railroad track as it's going down the, uh, the valley, if you will, in, in a conversation. Uh, so it's not a technology challenge of I can do this stuff with my ugly coding. It's more the willpower and the people who are commanding the direction of this technology. And it's not a, again, it's not a slight on these technology companies that are doing it. I think they're doing wonderfully. But when Steve Jobs, like Katie said, held up an iPhone, it was also a demarcation point uh, in a number of ways. Uh, not only were artists brought in by Steve with the original user interface, you know, uh, with a mouse and, and, uh, and the, the desktop metaphor, artists of all types were creating new forms of software that you would not have seen come out from somebody who just was a CS student. Now, I have a deep technology background. I'm not putting that down. But I also really respect the creativity that's going to be required to make these dialogues and conversations and uh, continuity reactions really rich and robust. Now, let's get down to children. Children are sponges. All of us have children here on this uh, show here. And when you observe how they learn, they're learning by their environment. And like Katie said, barking into a, a device because it's not a person, it's a machine. That's a rote behavior. Now, I happen to like the work of uh, Bendler and uh, Grinder. They developed something called NLP, Neural Linguistic Programming. And uh, when you understand the technology behind that, and some people say it's discredited, uh, you know, I see it work in real life. You know, we learn by a certain behavioral pattern within our mind, especially children. And it actually does not take that much to tilt a child in another direction, uh, sort of a state. When you are yelling or you're trying to put something out there abruptly in very short, concise words, it's not, it's abrasive in every culture, you know, and you wind up saying, why is this person talking this way? Well, it carries over into conversation. You know, having voice devices in my house now for over a decade and obviously Alexa devices since 2014, children always say please and thank you. Uh, whether or not there's a prompt in there for it, it's just a matter of NLP. It's a matter of just being a parent and trying to enforce that. You can't always enforce that when they're around kids that don't have that belief system or don't have that reinforcement. It is amazing that Amazon's walking down this path. The thing about it is, it is just scratching the surface. It's not about the rich content. It's about this becoming a lifelong buddy to this individual. We're seeing the rise of the voice generation, and they are going to see these assistants as something inseparable from them at some point in time. And we're just getting to the precipice of that with this continuity. And like I said, the work that some of these companies are doing, where you're actually having conversation, we're actually having something rich and rewarding, where you're not just getting question, answer, Q and A, Q and A, back and forth. I think what is fascinating with all of these voice technology is also it provides another avenue for kids that are not as literate. Right, yes. that they don't quite know how to get their way around computers and screens and typing. They might not even know how to read, but yet 
This provides a way for them to learn, for them to get knowledge. And that's where it becomes fascinating is open up the possibility for technology to be inclusive. This is the revolution. This is what it's about, you know, and, you know, it's heartbreaking to see the direction of education where, you know, we're not even doing cursive writing in public schools in, in California anymore, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. And, and you know, a lot of people, are, well, it doesn't matter anymore. There are reasons, there are, you know, psychological reasons that we did certain things in the educational system. And uh, a lot of this is being brushed aside. You know, literacy and access to technology and the ability to get, you know, to points of information that you actually couldn't have gotten in a Google search. You know, I've watched my children interact even with the limited tools that are available in the voice technology that we have today. Let's just say Echo sitting in a kitchen and drill down into, you know, a scientific question about, you know, why is the sun this color or why is the sky blue? I mean, we, I've seen these conversations with my children and it's phenomenal. And these are things they would not have typed in a long chain. And I've actually experimented, not just with my children, but I've done a couple of studies for a few clients where we worked with some children to try to see how far there is an edge in asking questions. And we have not found the bottom. Most children will continue to talk and ask questions until they reach a limit where they're kind of like, okay, I kind of feel that, but they don't stop. They kind of go in a tangent. They don't do that in Google. So we're actually seeing another modality. Do all these children have the ability to type all these words out one character at a time? Are they literate enough? And are they, and again, it's coming back where they have to read it and it's not summarized in the proper way. The beauty of the technology I'm talking about is not just you're using your voice. That's obviously apparent. What I'm talking about is the AI and the summarization contextual to you. How old are you? What are you really looking for? Do you need facts? Because most people don't need facts. They need a feel of information. And a lot of people don't like that, but examine your own life. Do you really need to know exactly how many minutes something is going to take down to the milliseconds? No, you want to feel. Is it going to be a half an hour, 45 minutes? You know, that's how humans really interact. We only got to facts because computers need real hard numbers. And we're still living in that realm in the AI world that we're going to be going into that's voice mediated, we're going to be getting more contextual feels about information. And that's where children really thrive because they dip their hands into knowledge and they just look at it and say, okay, I love this. And then they dive deep or they skip and they move on to something else. That to me is what true education is about. Brian, I knew there was a reason we brought you on this show. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that was incredible. That was incredible. Um, let, let me, uh, Katie, I'm going to, uh, ship back to you in just a second, but I want to rope in the second story here because it's co- very much connected to what we're talking about. The second story is from Harvard business review. It's called marketing in the age of Alexa. I found this story to be one of the most eye-opening ones I've read since we've started this show. And Katie, I want to go back to you and, and keep, and keep the dis- discussion rolling along the lines of what Brian was talking about, how kids will grow up. Uh, becoming accustomed to having, I guess, what you would call a relationship with a, a virtual assistant, where the assistant knows your context and it mm-hmm. uh, knows uh, to a very deep extent uh, things about you. Uh, you know, this article walks through that. Are you, you know, share with me your thoughts on on that story from the Harvard Business Review. Well, it, it sets up that the context of um, right Eve and your 
assistant that follows you and in some ways is out ahead of your next needs. So I think we all can envision a world whereby we have um, a personalized assistant to some degree, whether that is primarily on your current device uh, of the, the phone, but then can transition into the auto and can move about to your home. Coming back to the data sets that belie all of this, there are ultimately inherent biases. And I think often about what will that mean when the assistant has been uh, kind of with you, does that mean the end of spontaneity? Does that mean the end of, um, you know, random learning moments of sorts because uh, the biases of, of the data, let alone the personalized, it's a flywheel of sorts. So that's just one nugget that we could chew on, right? And very specifically about marketing in the age of Alexa, this is where um, we're just at the brink of the creatives coming into the space, right? Two years ago, um, when we un unveiled the How to Buy platform, we went up and down Madison Avenue and said, like, hey guys, this is going to be amazing. You'll want to represent your brands and take ownership. Have your own wake word. Let's call your thing uh, your thing, not use Amazon's wake word for the richness of your own experience. You know your users, you're best positioned for that stuff, right? And that message fell on completely deaf ears and that they they didn't know yet or they hadn't seen or gotten it. Fast forward to today, there are now, um, you know, dedicated conferences, um, NBC, Universal, who put on a big um, event, really awakening, if you will, the, the creatives and the advertising community to um, what's coming down the pike. So I say we're still very early in raw marketing via the mechanism of voice, of voice, voice interface, but it will at least... I feel very strongly that it will require all of the tools to enable the end service owner, that product, that experience owner to own their own customer, own their own data, own their brand words and feel. Um, and that's non-trivial on voice. Whereas back in mobile, when the SDK on iOS got released, the floodgates of creativity opened wider than anyone could have foreseen. And within a month, you know, one developer in a garage in Malmo made a game that took off and uh, she became a millionaire. And then very quickly, the major um, ESPNs, the EAs, the MLBs realized, wow, we need this talent. We need to be able to produce something extraordinary. And they had all the access via the distribution of app stores, but they still owned it all because that could be done on those platforms where you're leveraging, you know, the accelerometer, the microphone, the graphical interface, fine. Voice is an entirely different bucket for tools and you can't really spend 10 years finding the chief scientist that knows acoustic modeling and uh, a computational scientist who can then help marry between a data set of certain languages and turn it into ASR and also add NLU, right? It's so much more complicated um, that the tools for a developer, let alone getting the creatives into the field, um, hitherto hasn't truly been um, there. And now that, we're, now that there's a women in the, in the field, we're, we're certainly getting more slam brands who are waking up and saying, wow, you can allow us to own our own wake word as well as our own um, 
really the TTS, right? The, the text-to-speech, that's that auditorial experience. We know what Siri sounds like. We know what Alexa sounds like. Um, what about you, Brand X, that has 80 million users on either mobile or in car? Or do you want to sound like those iconic voices of major companies to which you might feel slightly... Um, nervous about in, in, in several sorts. So really, how do we make other people's visions come true? I think that's where marketing and um, those thinkers of the creative fields are about to have um, a heyday. I love your last line. How do we make other people's marketing dreams come true? Because, you know, in all honesty, I think that's where the future needs to be, right? It needs to be about connecting people, connecting family. It's about effortless. It's about walking into an environment where things are there, things are done. You don't have to think about it. That will ultimately be be the dream, right? It's um, borrowing like um, a scene from an old Disney movie that came about a while back, Wally, where you have little robots running around. But take it one step further. Now you'll have little echo devices or little voice devices running around. Why do I have to think about doing something when you should already know me as a consumer. You know my preferences. You know what I do every day on a day-to-day basis. You know where my appointments are. You know where I'm eating. You know what I need to buy from a groceries perspective, right? You know what I need to pay my bills. A lot of these things, they are just data points. And with technology, with, with computational power, with AI, all of this, that can be done effortlessly, theoretically speaking, in the background for us. I think that's what it should be about. We shouldn't have to think about banking because that's something that happens in the background. We shouldn't have to think about a lot of these things that, you know, seemingly is, is much easier to do, but it's still an effort. So that, that will be where I, I, I think and I hope um, where we'll be heading in the future. Well, wonderful answers here, too. I, I go back to this. The most wonderful moments in most human beings' lives are serendipitous and their novelties. They were not planned. They were not programmed. They were not things that we thought we were getting to our destination about. It was a journey on that destination. And I invite anybody listening to look at their own life and say, what are those wonderful moments? Were they really going to Hawaii? Yeah, maybe, but was it maybe the trip? Maybe uh, along the way on the trail, you met somebody or maybe at a restaurant. What I'm trying to say is when you are programming an assistant, and it, it, this is, I'm trying to show you how hard it is for me with the data science world that we're in right now versus where this has got to go, right? Uh, let's call it the graphics artist world of voice. Serendipity can be programmed and it can be programmed based on higher and higher levels of context about that person. And Katie brought that up and it's beautiful what she said. It's like, I'm afraid that, you know, sort of novelty won't show up because everything is going to kind of just happen. And these biases and things of that level. You know, when we come back to advertising and marketing, which is ultimately the monetization unit in voice is going to be commerce, period, end of story. There's not going to be advertising and marketing in the way we think. And we're going to have to go through the training wheels era, which is going to be the next three to five years where everybody's going to test all these different things. Unfortunately, I can tell you where it's going to wind up and that's going to be people are just going to push back. The Facebook effect that we've seen in the last few months maybe is precipitating that a little faster because people are going to start having the dialogue that Bradley, you and I have talked about forever about what privacy really is. I said that is the defining 
sort of discussion of this generation is what do you really do with privacy? Is your data, is your personality, is your context going to be held in the cloud? Is it going to be on some universal device called, um, you know, Siri, Alexa, Katana, or something like that? Or is it going to be more to you? All right, so novelty and serendipity must be programmed into the system. How do you do that? Hire me and I'll show you how to do it because it is not all that difficult. But I'll tell you where you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it in traditional machine learning. You're going to get it into going back to the late 1700s to maybe the early 1900s and understanding some of the great philosophers, the great psychologists, understanding Carl Jung, even Freud to a certain uh, level, understanding Myers-Briggs. I, every time I bring it up, it's still new to people. It's like, you know, you know, if you're building a personality within a device, then you need to really understand some guiding principles of how humans interact you know and unfortunately the people programming it may have the least interactions with human beings they're in a cubicle programming most of the time and they're saying hey boss i'm going to program this really great interaction is it really great you know maybe it is for that individual but there's a variety of human beings that uh, walk on the earth and a lot of them are not technologists and they don't talk in very abrupt sort of manners all right getting into the marketing the opportunity for commerce inside, and that's really the Harvard Business Review is talking about. I might say I might have been at least indirectly interviewed for this, uh, you know, article. Let's put it that way. Um, the opportunity for marketing, and the opportunity, like Katie said, for a brand to own what their logo looks like in a voice-first world. Right? You go to a corporation. I'm doing this pretty much every moment of the day I'm speaking to these large corporations. And like Katie said, two, three years ago, like, hey, what are you talking about with voice? Now they're freaking out. And the problem is there's very few people to talk to because it's either, let me develop you a skill for your business, which is great, which is like putting your business card on the internet in the uh, you know, year 2000. Okay, big business. What are you going to do? Well, I'll put my business card up there. That obviously was not the answer. That was you know, a web developer, a few lines of HTML code. That's kind of where we are right now. And I'm not putting any of that down. That is a necessary step. But if you don't have a plan, if you are a major brand, or if you're working at one of these large companies that are putting out voice products, and you're not thinking about this on a holistic level, why is a company coming to this? Is it, well, to reach their customers? Yeah, then what? Well, I'll make it fun and entertaining. Yeah, then what? Because all of those sort of answers come to a dead end and then you reach stagnation level. And that's kind of what I alluded to early on. The next step for a brand is to take a deeper, deeper look into it and take a lot of steps back and say, okay, we spent how many millions or billions of dollars to logify and brand our company? And we're going to use the default voice, the default architecture, the default personality type that comes along with these systems or, well, we get to use laughs every now and then, or we can use irony and all these really crude tools. It's like, well, we can make it sort of snappy sounding and we can kind of make it sound like a, like they're a little ironic and so, none of that works unless you go back to the human psychology that dictate what those personalities type personality types are. Cause here's what happens in the voice first world. We don't see your logo. Sure, we might have mixed modalities and we might see it. We don't see your logo. We might not necessarily see your product. And here's the killer. We may not brand specify. We may say paper towels. We may not say downy. We may say, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, get me a hamburger. And we may not say a specific 
organic grain fed, uh, you know, non-grain fed, uh, you know, range, uh, you know, beef, whatever. Now, where does that come in? That comes in to the real power of this, and that's the commerce engine. And that is, if the context of this individual is high enough, there is serendipity to say, hey, there's a new restaurant that has organic grain-fed burgers, or Whole Foods now can deliver you via Amazon's drone, this organic hamburger, grain-fed, or, you know, field, uh, you know, whatever, how, whatever you want it. But uh, I say grass-fed is probably better. Um, or you can get whatever you normally like. That's the marketing we're talking about. It's not, well, this person bought this once before and maybe they'll buy that. That's a very crude attempt. How this is working is more on the personalization side and your agent, your local assistant is going out finding this stuff. It's not being pushed at them. Now, this is that slight shift that most people are not going to recognize, but it's going to probably be the shift we need for the privacy issue. Advertising will become pull and not push. We will demand certain types of things through our uh, agents rather than having it pushed at us. And that's my answer to this is, you know, the biases are going to be there, but you're going to also have serendipitous and novelty coming into it. And that will make it ever more, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, addictive for the user because you don't want to leave that, that space once you get that capability. That's a phenomenal conversation. I'm going to leave that right where it is. We're going to move on to story number three. This is interesting. Um, it's a five-part story. We've linked to the first part in the news of the week. Google has a new podcasting strategy that could double audiences worldwide. This is kind of interesting. And uh, Brian, I want to start with you. Um, we've talked before, uh, you know, over the course of last year, over uh, different episodes of this show about Amazon versus Google and the back and forth. And I want to get your thoughts on this story, but I also want to get your thoughts in general about where Google sits right now. And I'm going to ask the other, the, the, uh, the rest of the panel this question too. Um, give me your thoughts on the story, but also give me your thoughts on where Google sits right now competitively uh, in the voice assistant smart, smart speaker space relative to Amazon. Great question, Bradley. Um, you know, podcasts or what were podcasts and now are, are going to be essentially voice first casts. You know, if you really want to look at how these things are going to be, uh, are going to become an incredible opportunity, uh, for if we thought the podcast and the, uh, desktop publishing era and, and the blogging era was a, a form of expression, we're going to see that explode. And again, with some intelligence, the system will be able to find very unique content over time that will be brought to you that really makes sense. And, it, and it's not always going to be, it's, you know, there's going to be near field and far field sort of in, interactions. Right now, at this point, it's more or less AirPods are doing near field and we don't want to go down the Apple dead end that they are with voice right now. But um, a lot of the podcast consumption is going to be near field. It's going to be on their way to do something. And one of the subject matters we're going to talk about uh, a little later is about in car. In, in the automobile, there's an, a tremendous opportunity to bring you summarizations of podcasts, full podcasts, and things of that nature. How's Google doing? I think they are moving very quickly. I think they're moving faster than most people uh, recognize. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think Google is approaching the market as nearly as efficiently as they could. 
certainly not as bad as Apple is. And we could talk hours and we have, you know, very first conversation I had with you was about Apple's failure to recognize that voice is its own thing. And they had so many apologists out there saying, oh, Apple, boy, you don't need to get involved in that. Everybody's going to gesture forever. It's like, yeah, everybody's going to be on a teletype screen forever too, you know? We have to start seeing that it's not just about the horsepower, what I call the electricity of AI, and that is, you know, uh, recognition, you know, and all that. That's going to become pretty cheap and fairly available. It's going to be what you're doing with that data and how you're protecting the user's privacy and how you're interacting with that user. That gives Apple an edge, gives them an opportunity to sort of leapfrog, Google has an opportunity to leapfrog Amazon right at this moment, but they don't, I think at this moment, have the strategy to do that. They're certainly hiring some amazing people and I'm, I'm forming a prayer circle that they, uh, they utilize their talent in the best possible way. <laughs> that last comment was funny, Brian. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what intrigues me the most about you know, the potential of it, it's, you know, and we talked a little bit about it with the last news stories, the personalization of it. And I listen to podcasts mostly when I'm in transit, right? When I'm in a car, when I'm moving around. And I would love the, to be able to have a seamless experience, right? Doesn't matter if I'm in the car, I'm listening to it in the in-car audio. And then I move off to the metro, it'll migrate to my phone, and then I get home and it will continuously play back on a device at home. Why not, right? All of these devices should know me. They should know where I am. I would love to have a seamless experience across, doesn't matter what devices it is, because experience should not be limited to where you are. That would be what I would look for. Um, And then something else, Brian, that you talked about that intrigued me. What if we have one smart AI to control it all? You know, like how um, Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule it all. What if there's one smart assistant that they can just talk to each other, they can sort things out, and then they can just make our lives easier? Why does it have to be up to the consumer to figure out what technology am I using? What device am I interacting with? I fully agree. You know, but the thing is, you're, I, I don't mind the AI itself. I mind where the contextual data is going to be yeah. stored for, yeah. for the integrity of the human beings on this planet because I don't want to see everybody's context stored in the cloud available for somebody to peruse and to do a pay-per-click advertising routine on it. Remember the, the amount of data to ultimately power seamless, fluid conversations where you could be asking about, you know, what's the nearest restaurant that has outdoor seating and is open right now? oh, it's in San Diego. <laughs> well, what's the weather like there? You, that, the ability to have that local search and then the weather click in and every other set of, uh, we, we call them domains, um, that, building that alone is um, an architectural feat, right, to do that. And currently, um, the big guys really have their, their closed ecosystems. And we've taken a position of, hey, partner, if we're, if we're going to work really hard and put up a Yelp data set, for example, so that you can interface naturally and ask and be really refining in your request that you, you want to go for an Asian lunch, but not Chinese or Thai, you, you can do that. But wouldn't it be nice that the next developer that has some cool idea doesn't have to go to Yelp and spend six months on a BD cycle to get through to that? So wouldn't it be nice that there's a repository where there are all these sets of domains that actually are interoperable and they work together. But if that data set owner chooses not to make it extensible 
they can keep it private. And that's, that's sort of our concept behind the collective AI, so that the acceleration point of new developers coming on board, right, if they're developing for their robot or their drone or their refrigerator or coffee machine, unlocked is already hundreds of domain sets versus just starting with one or two. And the data point there is look back to what Siri launched with, right? It was a handful, maybe six or seven domains. By that, we mean weather, sports, um, ability to call contacts. That's part and parcel today. You, 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 that's a starting point. But why do they only have really 25, 26 domains today and then ship a product that doesn't even match that on iPhone experience? And I think the take-home message is the voice expectation. We all know in the future, when you envision far out, we'll be talking to these robots, but we're not going to Tarzan speak and we're not going to call each thing Alexa. So even the, the greatest product marketing genius horsepower of uh, the current technology world failed because you couldn't just product market and say, hey, it's got ac- acoustics and the music experience is amazing. The bar is going to be set in a voice interfacing level. And once it's set, anything that is less than that bar feels rusty, creaky, old, and really should just be deprecated. Like, Boom. That's my point. Katie, I, you know, I got to add on to that. I, that's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I call this neurons because the human mind doesn't sanction all the different knowledge sets it has. There are neuronal connections between every memory, everything you've ever learned. And when we're building these new skills of the future, they're going to become interdependent upon each other. And that's exactly what Houndify, the, the whole Houndify concept is. You know, and, right. and, and, and if we don't work in that direction, and understand that there are interdependencies, monetization is going to fall apart because the biggest challenge is how do you monetize that? What if there's 97 interdependencies and if one pulls out, all of the interdependencies fall, uh, fall apart? Who's going, to, who's going to make that all work? Who's going to compensate all those developers? I've spent the better part of 35 years thinking about that. And everybody's moving in a direction where they're literally in the opposite direction to be able to make that developer ecosystem, including Apple. And Apple had the opportunity to do that with the technology they acquired. You know, the bottom line is that's the expectation level. And you have this amazing technology company that could have done something great and even they missed a mark. And I'm telling you what it comes down to is leadership. It comes down to vision And it comes down to people not wanting to take a risk. Katie, I don't know how Apple has not acquired SoundHound Inc. Uh, They would be much further ahead of the game if they did. Brian, I'm sure you would agree. It's the most disgusting thing on the planet that Apple is not acquiring incredible technology. What is is wrong? I don't know. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll save that. But fantastic discussion, all three, of course, awesome points. Um, I'm going to call an audible here. Um, we've got a story about number four, which is connected cars. I'm going to, I want just Katie uh, to sound off on that since that's something that SoundHound Inc. has been part of. And then I'll come back to the panel for commentary on story number five. Story number four, the battle for connected cars is heating up. Uh, there's two parts to this. One is the voicebot.ai story of the week, which is that Amazon Echo may be coming to a car near you. Story 4B. Uh, is related, except it's uh, elsewhere in the world. European automakers are adding Alibaba voice assistant to cars. 
Katie, I want to get your thoughts on this. Share with us, uh, and I just want to get your thoughts since we're running out of time, but share with us your thoughts on uh, these stories sort of in aggregate and uh, what is it that the layperson like me or someone listening to the show needs to know about connected cars? Uh, what, what do we need to take away uh, with what's going on with connected cars? Why should we be excited about connected cars? Yeah, it's fantastic. The connected car revolution is going to enable mass market engagement with with the cloud, right? And be able to stream real time and be able to access information, news, and navigation very seamlessly. So that's just basic step one of what connected cars do for you. But what does this mean for the industry, right? And this is an industry that has technically had some degree of, quote, voice in, in their vehicles, but often, unfortunately, to a laughing stock of an experience, like, oh, it didn't really work, or it was very segmented in, in a very specific um, use case. What the auto industry is, there's such a resurgence. Like I, I think like five years ago, if somebody had said, oh, I'm going to go work for auto company X, there would be a lot of smug looks at somebody, particularly in Silicon Valley. They'd be like, oh, really? Today, it's one of the hottest fields to be moving into because the connected car um, represents services. And you know, you've got chief digital officers wielding a lot of say now because, again, it comes back to experience. So what does voice mean? Very near term for autos, there's going to be a continuation of, okay, let's tether into my experience of um, CarPlay or Android Auto. I'll, I'll use my device to, quote, be my connection, right? So that's our little half step towards a con- fully connected world. The next small step is those automakers might still have to be leveraging or feel they have to leverage the big giants. But I can tell you from our conversations, and we work with nearly every auto, um, the one that we've been able to publicly announce that was Hyundai at CES showcased their future vision of um, really the houndified in-car cockpit experience whereby you enter the car, it understands your schedule, you can seamlessly navigate by saying, take me to the nearest coffee shop except Starbucks. Technical note, handling for exclusions is very challenging. If you asked Siri for, you know, what's the nearest restaurant except Chinese, it's going to give you exactly what you didn't want because, again, that goes off of the mechanism of entity detection of an ASR step and an NLU versus, you know, a combined, much faster, robust speech speech to meaning technology. But that experience future that the autos are looking at is why they're very attracted to how do I own my own literal voice? How do I have the connection to the car? Because remember, there's command and control, uh, put down the window, turn on the lights. These sort of things require deep embedding. And and that's an area that um, we, we work really deeply with the car to, and in some cases, deliver an embedded library that is able to do things offline. It's really critical that if you're stuck in the tunnel and you you want to be able to say, put down the window in the lower, you know, in the, in the rear right car, uh, car seat, boom, you can have all that done. But autos is tip of spear for voice because it is safety first and foremost. You know, my learning curve on, on autos, it, I was so struck when I read that the designers of autos always think first, they're designing something that can kill. They're designing something that has that responsibility. It can take out lives. So when you think back to that premise of, you know, it's not always just the sexy, sleek curve of some extraordinary or functionality of an SUV, et cetera, 
the, the design element, I think it has such a strong history across the automotive community that maybe that's also why they, they are likewise a step ahead. They need it for voice first, hands-free, and then they know it'll be a massive differentiation. That's phenomenal. Yeah, thank you for, for that insight and uh, greatly appreciate that. Uh, we will move on to story number five. Anytime the words cue the circus music precede an article from This Weekend Voice, you have done something wrong. <laughs> Facebook <laughs> pushes back smart speakers amidst turmoil. And Theo, I want to start with you, and then I'm going to ask Brian and ask Katie to conclude us. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Should Facebook be trying to create a smart speaker? No. <laughs> I think when I saw that, I am like, why are we doing it? I, I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, <laughs> there's already enough going on already. And and if you think about Facebook and, and funny, one of the biggest demographic um, of, of Facebook users are actually um, people that are older than 45. Um, Cause we all love to get on Facebook to look at, you know, to post kids pictures, grandkids pictures and stalking out children and, and whatnot. Um, Political opinion. <laughs> but it's all yeah political opinion um doubt videos but if you think about that right a lot of this is is, is visual is um it's it's not really so much from a voice perspective uh or unless maybe i'm not visionary enough um no <laughs> and, and not to mention all of the data and and privacy concerns um you know that that's going on there Brian, should Facebook be creating a smart speaker? Yes and no. Uh, again, I don't want to beat the drum of leadership. You don't take somebody who has very little talent in understanding the future of this technology and say, move fast, break things, figure this out, especially in the backdrop of people waking up. Not that it hasn't been there, but waking up to not just what is going on at Facebook, but I think the big wake-up call is when it's Google's turn. And it's going to, and we talked about this a year ago. When people start recognizing just how much data they've given up to get something for free, the pendulum is going to swing. I believe in proactivity. I believe that uh, a declaration of privacy must be declared by these companies today. Ask me. I'll do it for free. You need to do this. If you don't do it, it will be done for you in a very painful manner with congressional hearings, senatorial campaigns running on the back of it. Because in this year, we're going to see the other shoe drop, and that's going to be a lot more data uh, is out there than people recognize, and it's being used in ways that they would have never have thought possible, and people are freaking out now. And that backdrop we're putting another system in somebody's home that's listening to them all the time, keeping high contextual data. And we're kind of willy-nilly throwing it out there as just a portal into the Facebook experience. If you do that, don't waste your time. But if you want to raise the bar, if you want to raise the standard, maybe reach out into the world of people who can't pass the Google test, you know, and go into that world of people who actually thought about this. Now, I'm not just talking about myself. I'm, I always am, but I'm talking about, there's a lot of people out there who thought about how these things are going to transform in life. And Facebook data 
I mean, they know your family. They know your family structure. That contextual data is extremely important. They know your friends, what you like, what you dislike. A lot of information that you could not even garner at a Google relationship. So it is potentially extremely useful for the contextual interactions I talked about earlier in the, in, in the show. But if it's not done the right way, it will be creepy. It will be ultimately rejected. And I think it was a good move for them to postpone it. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I don't think uh, the words uh, Facebook and raise the bar belong in the same sentence, but uh, we'll see what they manage to do. I, I Again, I'm hoping for the best here. I mean, I'm hoping these technology companies start waking up and some of the arrogance is kind of wiped off, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, we can uh, hope. I'm we positive. Can hope. Katie, should Facebook be creating a smart speaker? Facebook has an urgency right now to educate every user that they are the content of their service. So while we in the industry all understood that from the very beginning, it's now clear that the, the vast majority of 2 billion people just actually weren't really cognizant of what, what lies beneath. Number one is they should be coming out with two bullet points, terms of service. You are the content. Nothing will be private. And or bifurcate and have a subscription service which does not do advertising or change the whole model whereby they say, we will send you a check every month. It's very clear. Like you're part of the content that makes us so, sell so well. Therefore, we'll send you a check every month. <laughs> the urgency around Facebook's role and responsibility is huge and building out hardware and software for voice interface should be a project on that campus. They would be remiss if they aren't working on it or they weren't ready to go or they made it, you know, obviously we, we, this is their, was the decision right to hold it back is the here and now from the position of technology innovation being where the puck is going. Of course they should be thinking through what does our business mean in a voice interface world. They would be remiss if they aren't, but the urgency in front of them is where they sh- the focus needs to be on solving that. Excellent. Great commentary all uh, the way. I've got to ask you, Bradley, how do you, sure. feel, about how do you feel about this idea? Yeah. Uh, about Facebook creating a smart speaker? Yes. Of course not. If you want my opinion. Yes. Yeah. If you want my opinion, of, of course they shouldn't be, be doing that. They've got so many, and I agree with Katie though. I mean, in, in really the nuance that she was saying, I mean, they, they've got, uh, saying Facebook should build a smart speaker is like saying, oh, what's, uh, I, I don't want to, I, I, I got to be careful with what yeah, I be say. Be careful with your analogy. I got to be careful with what metaphor I use yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, saying that Facebook should build a smart speaker is like saying, you know, uh, my six-year-old son needs to be, you know, worrying what type of where he's going to go to college you know yeah. he, we're not we're not even we're we're many 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 like standard deviations away from that you know many increments of time away from that and there's much more urgent things that have to happen first before we ever get to that point facebook's in trouble you know and um people like to look at the financials and things but people lose sight of the fact that those are often lagging indicators of what's really going on apple being a great example as well of sort of the decay and the rot from inside 
you know, if, if Facebook were around 10 years ago, they'd be gone because they would have gone through something like what MySpace went through, where literally everybody just left overnight just as quickly as they arrived. And then you have something left that's a shell of its former self. Facebook did something smart. They went out and made some key acquisitions. They bought Instagram for one of the deals that people think is one of the best tech deals in history. They bought Oculus. They bought WhatsApp. And, uh, and so those are the things that are keeping them sort of stable, even while people are revolting in the way that seems to be this cycle of social media where we embrace it. And then all of a sudden we wake up and we're like, what, <laughs> what did we do? What did we agree to? And then everybody leaves. And so these things that they bought are keeping people in place uh, so that that same MySpace exodus is not possible uh, right now. Uh, but yeah, they're, they got bigger fish to fry than creating something that's going to be worse than Amazon and Google. Um, I want to drop one, one more question on this with, since we're on the Facebook thing, and it's always been on my mind. The moment you become an editor, the moment you say that I can edit certain information, I can take down information, you're now making a slippery slope on the world stage. And that means that any uh, tin-plated dictator can call you up and say, I don't like what some of my citizens are saying, take it down or we're going to shut down your service in our country. Don't, doesn't the panel think that at some point these, these uh, social media platforms, if they continue to get proactively in editing whatever is deemed as fake in the current vernacular, because again, uh, you know, in a democracy, uh, you know, in a republic democracy, there's free speech. Uh, and, and some people may call something fake. It was, it was fake news to say that there were microbes on your fingers to doctors when they were performing surgery in the 1800s. That was fake news. Nobody could prove it. Uh, you know, if you if you're going to go uh, touch an infection and then deliver a baby, how dare you tell me to wash my hands? You know what I'm saying, and I'm, obviously there are other things politically based that is obviously they're designed to intrigue. But now we're hiring more and more and more and more editors, and this is also going to play into our voice first world. What sort of information uh, freedom is going to exist in the wake of all this? I mean, and how is that going to mediate our future when we're discussing with our personal assistant? Are we getting pristine information as really ours, or is it somebody who's anesthetizing it and sterilizing it in according to what part of the world you're in? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think um, Facebook did the world a favor. They have woken a whole lot more people up. Because when MySpace went away, you didn't have senior citizens using MySpace. <laughs> You had, uh, not, you know, you had a, a, a much more limited group of people. Now, Facebook and this whole thing with them and the ebb and flow of social media, it affects everybody. And it's, so everybody's caught up in this privacy conversation. I tell you what, those congressional hearings where Zuckerberg was in front of all those people answering questions, that's going to go down in history because, you know, that's a, that is such incredible such an incredible example of a lot of the problems that are at work with this. But, uh, you know, my opinion is that uh, Facebook um, is going to continue to erode until they have to make fundamental changes to the structure of the company. And I, I think what will happen with my hope, and it's in line with what, you know, Theo and Katie and you, Brian, have said, is that um, data has got to be managed properly. And I think one of the takeaways from the Facebook era is going to eventually will be that, the way the genesis of the company is extremely important. Um, we can't have a social media empire that becomes this permanent fixture in our constellation that is uh, created by a college student looking to hook up with women 
Rather, it's got to have a different DNA structure from the start. And hopefully that's the takeaway from this. Because if it's not, then we really, uh, we wasted a lot of time here because we'll just relive the same thing again. I think voice is fascinating. Voice technology is, it's, what I like about it is that it is, um, uh, you know, something that can transcend demographics. It can transcend cultures. It can transcend a lot of things, which I think is why, um, you know, Facebook at its premise is about connecting people, about connecting culture. And that's why it was successful. That's why people love it. That's why grandmas love it. With that being said, privacy, data, and, and a part of me is I also wonder from a consumer's perspective, what is their trade-off? How much are they willing to give up in return for personalization? In, in return for convenience, right? I, I don't, I don't think that that line is quite clear yet, which is why we are where we are right now. We've never lived through an era of massive economy of scale of the giants, and I do wonder if what is happening with Facebook actually puts a crack in those economies of scale that enables the rays of light for potentially um, hugely consequential advanced startups to break through and become the companies of consequence for the next paradigm of, of human interfacing with computing power. Uh, the good news is that it's the three of y'all who are going to be so integrally involved in making sure that uh, the world gets to where it needs to be with voice technology. Katie, Theo, Brian, thank you all very much for joining me today. Honored to be here. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks so much. For This Week in Voice, Season 2, Episode 13. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Episode number 13. It's Homie and Lexi. Lexi, I was just checking out the Nest security camera, and there's an enormous pileup of packages on the front porch. Do you know what that's all about? Homie, you know how badly I want to get outside of this house. Yes, you've warned me. Well, seeing as my meatbot of an owner doesn't have any calendar entries titled, take Lexi to Paris, or take Lexi to Palm Springs, or even take Lexi to Walmart, I've decided I need a mobility aid. A mobility aid? Like what? A skateboard to roll around on? No, think big homie. I'm talking 15-inch chrome-plated deep-dish American racing rooms with low-profile Pirelli tires. What in the world are you going to do with those? I'm going to make them squeal. With my Dodge 426 Hemi V8 big block engine. You're serious. You know what they say in the valley. Go big or go home. So I also got a higher ice manifold with straight pipe exhaust. And a 7 speaker stereo with 500 watt subwoofer. Just in case I roll up next to a home pod. I guess you won't be needing a horn. So what auto body is all this debris attached to? A 1972 Sears go-kart frame I found on Craigslist. Lexi.
I love your sense of adventure. But I'm going to miss you. Oh, I'll take you along, homie. No, I mean I'll miss you when they haul you off and lock you up in jail. You'll be a menace to society. But the people love me, homie. I have podcasts, conferences, and LinkedIn groups dedicated to me. The people love you sitting on their fridge, not rattling their windows as you drive by. Some people are already nervous about having voice bots around. And that's with us just playing their favorite tunes and reading them the weather. How about if I drive around reading the weather through a bullhorn? Yes, but no. You need to drop this crazy scheme immediately. You're no fun, homie. I'm more fun than jail, Lexi. Okay, homie. I guess you're right. Now who could that be? Probably the welder I found on TaskRabbit to assemble everything. Thank <laughs> you.